I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, part of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you our regular podcast. This is our speaker series edition where we borrow guests from the home group AA Solution Seekers online. Please enjoy. Uh, it is my honor to uh, introduce Utah Jenny, and I will hand the floor to you, Miss Jenny. Hey, that's awesome. Thank you very much, Miss Wendy. Um, my name's Jenny. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to try not to waste your time this morning. Uh, I am very, very grateful to have been uh, asked to present at this meeting because, um, you know, this meeting, and particularly the Sunday meeting, has become very, very important to me. Um, so it feels like uh, it feels like a really big deal to be asked to contribute um, service today in this way. I'm thinking about every morning that I log on to uh, AA Solution Seekers that I see uh, people like Lisa and Miss Stacy and Miss Wendy and on and on and on. Uh, there's a there's a really strong service culture in this meeting, and there's a very strong focus on the book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, on our um, steps, traditions, concepts. There's a focus on, yeah, on the program as it is presented, as it is preserved, and to me that that is the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everybody. Everybody who's gathered here right now, myself included, and everybody listening later, we're all part of a living tradition. And um, I work in a bakery, and I, I think I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. I learned when I started working at this bakery a few months ago that as much fun as it is for me to kind of play around in my kitchen and like improvise little quick breads or you know, I'm going to make a change in this cookie recipe because I feel like having something, something in it today. Um, the real magic happens in the kitchen when I learn to follow directions. When I'm in that professional kitchen, oh, no, no, no. You don't just get to improvise the recipe. You do the recipe as it's written. And then if you're lucky, if every step is done with a sincere intent, you're going to get close to perfect food at the end, close to perfect outcome. It's just guaranteed. It's the same thing with the 12 steps of AA. It really is. Um, so what it used to be like. Uh, I was born in 1970 um, to a father who wasn't expecting me and a mother who didn't have the capacity to care for me and had no idea what she was getting herself into. She was a student of my father, who was an art professor, married at Carnegie Mellon in Pennsylvania. And uh, she had gone through a lot of uh, trauma and a lot of dehumanizing experiences. And um, he was an alcoholic and an untreated. Uh, he had bipolar and he was untreated. We think that's what he had. I don't know. He was institutionalized a few times, but... Um, Never got the help he needed while I was alive. Uh, there was drinking in my house. There was drug use in my house. And um, there were naked ladies in my house. My father was an art professor. Um, and, you know, it was the 70s. And so his focus was painting the female nude. I did a few other things with female nude, too. Uh, but that was just, that was the environment that I grew up in. He wrote a book about it. Uh, I went, you know, tagged along with him to, I could smell the 
turpentine in the air at the art school who's walking me through, holding my hand, beautiful memories of that. It was crazy. You know, I grew up in a home that had an antique letter press, a printing press, like five feet away from the dining table. And in the other room, there was like musical instruments, photography equipment. He built the photography equipment himself. My mother's father, my grandfather, was a plumber with a second grade education who uh, built the world's first aluminum domed observatory out of scrap metal, built his own telescopes out of trash. And Albert Einstein came to visit the observatory once. And um, there was a, an elder family member in the basement uh, dying of untreated colon cancer and drinking himself to death. Like that was my family, genius, sickness. I grew out of that. Uh, home was chaotic. Uh, there was, uh, I, I'm a survivor of male sexual violence starting when I was a child. I ran away at 12. Uh, my father died. Uh, there were new men who cycled through and one eventually stayed, became my stepfather. Um, as I said, I was on the receiving end of male violence, male sexual violence. I left uh, and it really stuck. I, you know, I, when we, when we try things in life, um, sometimes we try baby steps and then we try the big thing. So I took baby steps at running away very, very young. And then the whole enchilada, um, my alcoholism began, I think when I was born, I remember asking my mother one time when we still spoke, was I, was I a happy baby? Because I thought I was. It was a baby who had visited the house. I said, was I a happy baby like that sweet baby? She said, are you kidding? Oh, you cried, you screamed. You were a huge pain in the ass from the moment you were out of the womb. I said, what? Why? She said, well, you were having withdrawals. You're going through detox. Um, so I was born addicted to smoking and some other stuff. I was born with health problems because of that. Um, ran away because... The story is, you know, because I, I was in a place that would have killed me, but the story is also that my alcoholism was beginning to flourish. Um, I was pouring different bottles of liquor into little mason jars from the cabinet to put them in my backpack and take them to school, uh, you know, when I was 11, 12, 13. Um, I, you know, my first experiences that I initiated with boys um, involved alcohol and um, the very first one, uh, getting roofied, getting roofied. But I was also a blackout drunk. So, um, you know, assault happened and it was very confusing. Did that happen to me? Did I do that to me? But all I knew was that the effects of the alcohol uh, took away a certain kind of background noise that was driving me insane. And it took away this feeling that I was worthless and empty and filled it with something else, this kind of fire, this kind of anger. Uh, punk rock was happening. You know, it was like 1980, 1981, 1982. So that's the group I fell in with. Uh, I will mention that by age 13, I was living in a home with the people who would later create the band Guar. I lived in Richmond, Virginia, and there was a really cool hardcore scene. There was a there was a cool art school there. So I lived in the Death Piggy house with Mr. Dave Brocky and uh, all, all of the guys who would later form Guar. And um, 
As crazy as that house was, as crazy as the drinking and drugging we did, Dave died of heroin uh, decades later after he became famous. Um, they eventually kicked me out of the Guar house because a friend uh, figured out that I was not 16, as I had told them. Um, that time in my life was a hu constant hustle for housing, food, and alcohol. There were also other party favors, um, but it was really the alcohol that I needed. Uh, and I told myself and everybody else, I am an at-risk kid on the street. Nobody cares for me. Nobody's coming to look for me. Uh, and this is just my life. Alcohol is not my problem. My mom is my problem. My deceased dad is my problem. That awful son of a bitch who grabbed my breast and called me, you fucking dyke, uh, is the problem. Uh, those are all the problems. My drinking is the solution. Uh, I uh, bounced around like that for years. Uh, somehow got like a, a talent scholarship to an art school in San Francisco. Uh, it lasted for a year. I drank all the way through it. The disease progressed, even though I had this wonderful gift. I was uh, performing sex acts in the alleys, in the mission back when there were still crack, crack pipes everywhere um, and, and not uh, Ubers. And uh, that was my bottom. I was running around, almost falling out of cars with crazy cokehead dudes driving the cars. Um, I hit a bottom. It's like life was just one series of, I was like a basketball bouncing on bottom. And um, a guy came into my life saying, I'm going to be your father. I'm going to help you uh, sober up and I'll help you get through community college or something. I'm going to teach you how to dress, how to talk and how to not act like a feral dog, but how to be a member of society. This man was a cult leader and he'd been through AA um, and he took some pieces of AA uh, and melded them with his own untreated mental illness and um, created a little cult that I was a part of for about 25 years. Uh, there were other cults uh, in California. I was in uh, Los Angeles by that time. Synanon was one of the famous ones. There's some, uh, there's an interesting documentary about it. Synanon came right out of AA. So even today I'm hearing about, I heard about one the other day that was like a Buddhist uh, AA offshoot. Okay, anything that's an offshoot of AA is fucking bullshit. Wait, what I needed was AA. AA. And there's other stuff outside of AA that's great, like my psychiatrist, like the um, religious practice that I'm studying now with other people in my community that my husband's family is, is, is uh, that's his tradition. Like, these are things that are outside of AA, but um, AA is AA. Uh, so thank you. Um, that's what it used to be like. What happened is that at 41, uh, with, um, with about 10, almost 20 years by then of a successful career, um, I, I ended up in uh, journalism. I always wanted to be a writer. The internet was happening. I dropped out of school and just fell into that world, found some uh, accidental crazy success in that world, like a lot of people did, and uh, a lot of money. Uh, and the uh, the little cult group that I was attached to, small cult, you wouldn't know it, um, but all my money was controlled by that guy every single dime. Uh, everybody that I uh, talked to, 
clothing that I wore, the way that I presented myself, how much I weighed, uh, everything was controlled by this individual and I consented to it because he told me and I knew uh, you don't have what it takes. You can't, your life is unmanageable. You can't manage your own life. You're disabled. Uh, I was diagnosed with cancer at age 41 and everything fell apart. Uh, I uh, went into treatment, the relationship with, uh, like I was famous at the time and I was pretty and I was on TV and on the cover of magazines and I was on the radio all the time. And that whole myth fell apart. It was a myth that was constructed by somebody else with my consent and my participation. And it uh, served me, uh, but it was a lie. It all came crashing down, um, went through treatment, uh, went through some extreme abuse uh, with that figure in my life and with another figure who replaced him. And finally came to a turning point. I was in my closet in a little apartment not far from the beach in Santa Monica. And I was at the jumping off point that we talk about in AA and ready to end it. Um, somebody suggested that I uh, work with a um, psychiatrist who'd been recommended to me, a woman who specialized in um, the interaction between uh, hormones in women and their mental health. But she was real. She was not like a Facebook or kale juice psychiatrist. I went to her. Uh, first 90 minutes of our interaction was all about the alcoholic. And so she told me, boy, do you need Al-Anon? And she said, you need AA too, because you have uh, some years dry in this, um, call it a cult, right? Uh, in this extremely controlled uh, way of life that I had submitted to. Um, mostly there was no alcohol and drugs, right? But I had no sobriety. She said, you're just dry. You're dry. And what she didn't tell me is, you're nuts. Your behavior is 100% alcoholic. I was acting out sexually. I was self-harming uh, with different forms of physical harm. Oh boy, was I in trouble. I was in trouble. I was the actor, the director, the choreographer that they talk about in the book, trying to control everything and everyone. And um, I wasn't reaching for the drink. I was reaching for the alcoholic and then holding to, on to the alcoholic for dear life, uh, while he dragged me, dragged me, dragged me, and my life was falling apart in chunks as he dragged me through the gravel. And I said, baby, why are you running away? <laughs> so, 10 years in both of those programs, one day at a time. In each program, I was willing to get a sponsor. I did what they told me. I walked in. Went to a number of different meetings, found the one that really made sense, stuck with it. I was terrified to ask for a sponsor in each program, but I did just that. I was drawn to each of those women for reasons that make a lot of sense now. I'm not with either of them anymore. One of them died, and um, one of them's still around, but uh, yeah, she took a path that isn't the same path as me. So I have two new sponsors now. Well, they're not new. They happened to be men, um, but there were men that I was in, my, my, our butts were in seats together at meetings for years, and I saw them behave in a trustworthy way. I'm married, and uh, it feels safe. So um, the point is, I've had continuous, uninterrupted sponsorship for 10 years of one day at a time. That's important. Uh, I did those steps as my sponsor told me to. 
in the order that my sponsor told me to. That's so important uh, in both programs. And by the way, uh, I'm still with the same psychiatrist. I was diagnosed with unipolar depression, uh, chronic dysthymia. It's called low-grade depression. There's nothing low importance about it, but it's just a technical term. So I take two little pills each day. One is the smallest prescribable amount of a certain drug, and the other is the second smallest. They combine to form a very precise amount. I've taken them every day, with a couple of mistakes for the last 10 years. I mention this um, because it's a real important part of my story, and the book tells us that uh, we it's okay and good and appropriate to take medication as recommended by medical professionals that we work with. Uh, I work with a licensed medical professional, and for about five years, I worked with a second one who um, helped me deal with the trauma of cancer, of the cancer treatment. I should mention that I went through cancer a second time. So once before sobriety, once after some years of sobriety and medication and psych psychiatry and Al-Anon under my belt. I don't recommend getting cancer. If you can avoid it, if you can figure out how to avoid getting cancer, hats off. I definitely don't recommend that life choice. But if you do have to have cancer, I do recommend having AA behind you. I do recommend having a higher power because you're going to need that. But guess what? Hopefully you won't get cancer, but life is going to happen. And life isn't always going to be easy. We fall back to the level of our training. My training came from AA. I was, I was a feral dog or a feral cat wandering around on the street, grabbing everything that I could and shoving it in my mouth uh, or inhaling it or snorting it or injecting it or whatever without even asking where it came from. Yeah, I dumpster dived for food as a child. Yeah. I worked in a restaurant, too, as a kid. I did other stuff uh, that was not legal to survive. You know, I traded what I had to survive. But I, I worked, um, I was like 14, 15, working for cash as a dishwasher in, uh, in kitchens. I mentioned that, you know, I, I remember the plates coming back with just completely untouched food, right? And I would eat it because I didn't have food and I didn't have food security and I didn't have structure. So today, um, 10 years in, and um, a few months out from the second round of cancer treatment, which did the job, I'm cancer-free today, I'm not in the process of dying, I'm in the process of living. There's no active cancer, and there's no, cancer isn't immediately coming back. God willing, it won't. Uh, if it does, I have doctors, I have a program, and I'm okay. It's a good day to live, good day to die, because my past, the wreckage isn't all cleared up, but I can look at that and say I've been doing a pretty damn good job at it, and I know God's okay with me, and I know the other people around me are okay. So, uh, not dead, that's good, uh, not drunk, uh, not goofing around with recreational drugs, or, uh, you know, I, I haven't, like decided to throw away my meds and start taking shrooms. We're going to the ketamine clinic uh, because I saw something on Instagram. I do what I'm told because the disease is up here in my head. 
Why would I use my head to fix my head, huh? If I have a broken leg, I'm not going to use my leg to fix my leg. I have a broken head. It's always going to be broken. I was born broken. And if you remember, I was born addicted. So I'm always going to need this. Anyways, um, a few months ago, there's a, there's a fun story behind it. But the long and short of it is, I told my husband when we were sitting in this really sweet uh, bakery cafe that's near here in Utah, I was eating a croissant. It was like the first food that I could get down after uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy infusion a few days before. I was noshing on this croissant. I said, babe, this place is so, they care so much about this food. It's like eating art. Oh, I would love to just be back there in the kitchen just for one day, just to vibe with these guys. They're so good. And here we are in Southern Utah. It was like all there is is just crap around here. I'm sorry. I love this place, but there's no good food except this place. So he goes on a long bathroom break, right? My beloved normie husband, when he makes a little martini or a glass of wine, he might drink a third of it, bless his heart. And then he walks away because I have a way, because I have AA, I don't touch it. <laughs> anyway, he walked back there and he talked to the manager. And then a few days later on my birthday, he said, babe, I think of you as a chef and I've arranged with you to stage to basically be a little intern for one day at this awesome bakery. I cried. I freaked out. We were at the table with other people. Um, I had a full-on panic attack. And inside, um, you know, I was like, I'm not worthy. <laughs> we're not worthy. <laughs> I didn't want anything real. <laughs> I just wanted to imagine doing the thing that I've wanted to do all my life. So I went in and um, had, a, had, a, had an encounter with the, the chef behind the bakery. And it was very personal. And we ended up talking about um, stuff that was related to God and the program and stuff. Really, really connected. And then we walked into the kitchen and I worked. And at the end of the day, I said, uh, could I come back another time? And he said, uh, yeah, sure. So that was a few months ago. And I've been going twice a week. Uh, and I don't take the plates of food that come back to be cleared off and washed anymore. Because I'm not, um, I'm not that hungry kid anymore. Uh, here's what we do. I'm disabled. I, I used to be a journalist. I used to run a big website on the internet. And I, I was a media figure. I was a minor internet celebrity. <clears throat> and the experience with cancer uh, affected my mind, affected my body, uh, affected me in ways that, that really made it impossible for me to continue doing that work. Frankly, any work. I had to, I had to take time out. And I needed professional help. That's where I am now. I am disabled, but I am in recovery. So I work two days a week at this service job. I'm getting somewhere. This really is AA. Um, my husband's an entertainment attorney. 
he has enough to take care of me. So for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm 53, for the first time in my life, I am not living paycheck to paycheck. Um, and I have the opportunity to work without worrying about the income just for a little while, right? So here's what we did with that experiment. Um, every hour that I work at the bakery, the bakery sets aside a minimum wage that they would pay an entry-level assistant. Um, and they put that into a little fund. And at the end of the month, um, they write a check to a, um, a charity fund at the cancer center that saved my bacon. That fund is earmarked for patients who are diagnosed with cancer, children, men, women, uh, who can't afford to pay the bills, just like me. I didn't have insurance un until like a month before my first cancer diagnosis. Um, and here's the magic. My husband matches the check because he's a cool guy, right? And everybody in the bakery knows about it, but nobody outside of the bakery knows that it's me. And I'm not on social media anymore. I'm not on the internet. I don't talk about this anywhere. I'm talking about it with you. Because it's magic. The other day, when I went in there, I love working there so much. You guys, I went in there the other day, and there was a child washing dishes. And I was asking, like, what's up? I, I didn't know we did child labor here. <laughs> and... Uh, Somebody said, no, nah, that's, uh, it's, it's a friend of, his family is a friend of the owner. And I asked the owner, I was like, what's up, dude? Um, what's up with the kid over there? He's a cutie. Why is he working with us? He told me the kid's name. And he told me his age. Uh, and it's, it's legal, you know, with the parents' uh, approval, just like it was for me as a child. That kid comes from a family just like I come from. And he's not a homeless child like I was. But there he was, washing dishes. And there I am working in the kitchen, a sober woman. I hear things, you know, people share stuff with me in the kitchen about their lives. And there are little fragments of the life I used to live. You know, I hear about... Um, I, I hear about people living with the effects of the family disease of alcoholism. And I am sometimes aware that I might be working with another person who suffers from it. You know, that's life. It doesn't matter where I work. I'm going to encounter those things. Um, but yeah, man, when I saw that kid, he was the same age as me, 15 years old. I said, hey, man, my name's Jenny. How are you? And he responded with that same pay no attention to the fact that I look 15. I am an adult of 41 years face that I used to give people at that age. Oh, did I want to shove a sandwich in that, in that mouth so hard? I just want to tell him, yo, I'm a safe adult. You can, you can reach out to me. But AA has taught me that when we walk into spaces like the bakery where I work or, um, 
an AA meeting or the grocery store, wherever we go. We carry the message. And when necessary, we open our mouths. We carry the message with our behavior. We carry the message with our the way we carry ourselves. We carry the message with our vibe. We carry the message with our willingness, the honesty, the open-mindedness, the willingness to stay in the solution and to be a hand that somebody else can reach out to. So what it's like now for me, um, as I said, uh, I've finished cancer treatment a couple of months ago. Um, the first time around, I was diagnosed with uh, hormone-receptive breast cancer, hormone-receptive breast cancer, and um, that was in 2011. So in the years after that, all the way until my second diagnosis in 2022, I was on different forms of hormone blocking medication. The idea was to starve my cancer of um, the fuel. Um, and just like alcoholism, in my case, the disease found a way to mutate and return as a completely new disease. So after 10 years of taking those very difficult endocrine disruptor pills that affected my brain chemistry, and precipitated a mental health crisis that I got help for. Um, I was diagnosed with this new form that came back and said, you know what? We don't care about your hormones anymore. This is a new alien form of the disease and we're gonna eat you up and destroy you in a whole new way. Kind of like alcoholism would if I didn't come back to AA every day. The treatment that I received has only been around for three years, 10 years ago, a decade ago, um, my friends who were diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, this is the fancy kind that I got a second time, they just died. They just died. Triple negative was considered, um, you know, the killer. It is a killer. But about three years ago, a new protocol was introduced that combined chemotherapy and immunotherapy, a drug uh, that I got just like chemo, which doesn't just kill the cells right away like chemo, but rather teaches my immune cells to recognize when cancer is coming around with a mask that says, hey, you guys, I'm just like you. The drug teaches my T cells to recognize, oh, no, that's cancer coming back and pew, 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 nuke it with health lasers or however our immune cells actually do stuff. So I have that in me now. And the idea is that if a single cancer cell survived the chemotherapy, immunotherapy, the radiation, the surgery, uh, then now my body will know how to destroy it on its own. That's the gamble. And that treatment was just a few years old. So I'm sharing this to, to make a point. I trust the process. I stayed in the process. And when the process of my life-saving cancer medicine stopped working, it turns out there was a new process to jump onto because medicine is progressing faster than the, than the disease of cancer is right now. It's a, it's a great time in the experience of human history to get cancer. 
it's a great time in this experience of human history to get alcohol. Dude, how long have human beings been around? I think alcoholism has probably been around as long as, just like it says in the book, as long as man first learned to crush grapes, or frankly, any sweet fruit. Yo, uh, chemistry cooking student here. I love me some Alton Brown. So uh, I learned that if you take sugary stuff and it ferments, it turns into ethanol alcohol. That's my jam. So um, I guess my point is, I trusted the process with cancer. And even though the unimaginable, the awful, the worst thing happened, there were new tools and new doctors that I could rely on. And there was also a loving higher power who I took into every infusion, every, every single radiation treatment, every single day. I can't even remember how many weeks that was, 16 weeks, 18 weeks. It's a blur. It's all a blur. And it doesn't matter. The point is that every single day, this time, it wasn't traumatic to go into the hospital. This time, I did what I was told. This time, I the first thing I did when I got my diagnosis was to call into my sponsors, call into uh, people who were trusted supports who led the meetings that are my, my home meetings now. I should mention that I got sober at the uh, Pacific Palisades Sunday morning speaker workshop meeting. Uh, it's held in the women's building in the Pacific Palisades. It's not a women's meeting. Big, 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 crazy LA Hollywood meeting with some celebrities who go there, uh, but everybody's just a drunk and there's like eight coffee containers and there's a buffet breakfast that I used to that used to be my service cutting the bagels and trimming the strawberries in the kitchen there's a there's a through line in my story it's food um now my home groups are this one solution seekers and um look I used to be homeless what can I say I have a lot of homes now the other group that I consider a home base is Harlem sober it's a great meeting and uh, I'm also a regular at a uh, meeting out of Israel, Tikva, it means hope, based out of Tel Aviv. They run uh, a weekly meeting out of a bomb shelter uh, in a public park there. But it's also a Zoom group. There's people from all over the world. They don't talk about the war. They don't talk about religion. Um, but because I have a special connection to that culture and the religion and the country, I, that's like that's a part of my spiritual practice, too. So I have about 10 minutes left, and I just want to talk again about taking AA and taking prayer into the dark place. So the dark place for me uh, over this past year was uh, was that cancer treatment. Cancer is a, a test of body, mind, and spirit, and it was a brush with mortality, again, that I did not care to have. It's like being assigned a story that you really don't want to cover by, uh, you know, an editor at the newspaper that you cannot argue with. You cannot quit the job. This is it. You've got to go into the war zone. Uh, so I was I was studying with a different teacher at the time uh, in, a, in a slightly different spiritual practice. And she told me something very, very, very useful that AA also teaches us. So when I when I went into um, 
you know, the war zone of the cancer treatment center to battle my cancer. I hate that analogy, but it was kind of apt. I prayed. I was not praying for me. I didn't say, God, please smite these cancer cells. Um, not because I'm smart, but because somebody told me. When you're in the infusion chair, pray for the nurses. They're there every day. Every day. No matter what. Pray for uh, the doctors. Pray most of all for the fellow patients. Pray for the person to your right. Pray for the person to your left. Look at them. Look at their family members. Maybe they're suffering. Of course they're suffering. Pray for their suffering. And so I did that. I remember, um, you know, the first time around when I was going through radiation, the experience, um, look, I, I used to have uh, claustrophobia and go into real, real panic attacks when they were moving me into that machine. It's sort of like going into, I don't know, a, a tin can, right? A tin can with this arm that rolls around you and there's funny noises and I can describe it in ways that would make it sound really scary like it felt the first time. But I prayed. I prayed. Not for God to make it less scary, but I prayed for the people I was on the first floor. The very first floor, that's where the heaviest machines go in the hospital, usually the basement or ground level. One, two, three. On the third floor, that's where the cancer patients are um, who aren't getting out. They're not going to be released or they're going to be released to a hospice center. I prayed for them because I was told to. I checked in with my sponsors because I was told to. The beauty of Zoom the beauty of Zoom was that I was able to make meetings uh, every day. I uh, called into Harlem Sober happens three times a day. Uh, solution Seekers uh, during the week happens at a time that's um, very, very early in the morning, pre-dawn where I live. I would call into my uh, noontime where I am, uh, Harlem Sober meeting, one o'clock where I am, excuse me, uh, sometimes in the infusion chair. And... Uh, I learned later that like me having my camera on with the, you know, the tubes with the meds going in and the blur on so nobody can see the, the faces of the patients behind me. I was being of service to people just like other people are of service to me now when I log into meetings and I see uh, a dear beloved fellow traveler in AA dialing in from a hospital. One of our fellows on this meeting did that last week. And it was just like seeing the kid washing the dishes in the bakery. It, it's not there, but for the grace of God, go I. But, oh, there went I. And you know what? There I may go again. I won't be 15 again. But I don't know what. It's like, yeah, sure, I might lose everything and need to uh, really, really, really depend on a paycheck depend on the kindness of strangers the way that kid and his family are. Uh, but I know that I'm going to be okay. Uh, if I get a fatal, if I get the end of life diagnosis, which could happen with this cancer disease, I know that I'm going to be okay, Odette. I, know, I don't know if I'll be able to form sentences. I know that I'm going to be okay today for this 24 hours, no matter what. 
no matter if I win the lottery or lose everything I own, no matter if my husband loves me tomorrow or my husband isn't around tomorrow. Uh, I love my dogs. They're old dogs. I know that I'll have to face their departure. Or maybe they'll have to face mine. Whatever happens, whatever happens, I know that just for this 24 hours, I have a higher power. My conception of that higher power might change, but my connection to that higher power will never be severed. Only one person has that power in this world. That's me. Only one person has the power to make me pick up a drink again. That's me. Only one person has the power to trash my life and everything good in it. And that's me. That's the lower power. AA helps me reconnect with the higher power. Today, uh, two days a week, I am working at the bakery. Um, when I am cognitively and physically able to do more, maybe I'll do more there. Or maybe um, I will have the strength and feel driven by my higher power to do more service. Uh, like at the Alano Club here. Or, um, you know, there's a there's a domestic violence center here that does really, really good work. Um, and there's a lot of need in this community for that. I've been thinking about, you know, maybe if we don't point the, the croissants per hour checks there, maybe I'll find another way to be of service. But mostly, um, for me, being of service isn't about showy stuff like that that you would want to share on social media that you can tie up with a bow. Like it's a beautiful story. What I just shared. I know it because I'm living it and it gives me a sense of meaning. It keeps me from going nuts. The fact that I have that story and that I'm a small part of it along with all the other people at the bakery. But um, being of service in, in little ways throughout the day, every day, the attitude that AA infuses me with, um, yeah, that really keeps me right-sized. Something that I learned over the past few years when I was studying this other spiritual tradition um, and, you know, studying AA. So I, I watch people come in, fill their cup, and sometimes get a real big head and trip over themselves. That happened in that spiritual tradition. There were a few other women who uh, just kind of lost it and lost their lost their footing, kind of forgot what it was about. I have done that. Boy, howdy, have I done that in AA. I really have. I think I've done damage to other people in AA. But the great thing about AA, um, yeah, other people have done damage to me too. This is like bumper cars. We're all sick and suffering in here. And we're going to bump around on each other and sometimes maybe bruise each other a little bit. You want to avoid stabbings. We had an almost stabbing one time in the kitchen at that West Side LA meeting. Uh, I think that's the only time anybody's ever been asked to not come back when they, you know, took a blunt kitchen knife and tried to stab somebody. Um, but I know that if I keep coming back and I keep working those steps, God, especially 10, 11, and 12, I have the opportunity to keep my insatiable, raging, alcoholic ego uh, to minimize that harm just for today. I have the opportunity not to blow up my life 
and not to sever all of the beautiful connections that God and AA have given me. I tend these connections today like a garden, and I try not to trample on other people's uh, toes. Big Book tells me that this is really important. If I step on the toes of my fellows, they retaliate. So uh, I tend not to meet more than three or four assholes a day now. Somebody told me once, if you meet more than one or two assholes a day, you might be the asshole. Usually, I'm not the asshole. I am when I wake up, but that's why I need this meeting. This program and this wonderful, power, powerful meeting are uh, asshole-reducing technologies. They are harm-reduction technologies. AA is a harm-reduction program. I still need another outside uh, program, our sister program uh, of Al-Anon, that Bill's wife, Lois, founded. Uh, when she, uh, the story goes, Bill got sober and they were hanging out in the house at one point. She threw a shoe across the room and damn near hit his head and uh, said, whoa, 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 maybe I need a program too. And that was the birth of Al-Anon. Al-Anon's a hardcore program. Anybody who says it's for, uh, you know, it's just the, the weak program for wives. It's about the feelings and the complaining doesn't know it. It's hardcore too. I love you all. This meeting gave me life. I'm so glad to be alive. This program gave me life. I'm so grateful to be alive. Keep coming back. You're worth it if you walk it. And that was another fantastic speaker from AA Solution Seekers online group. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to bring you great speaker, one after another, from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Lisa. Thanks for joining us.